This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by the 2018 Launchpad Pilots Competition. Now in their fifth year, the Launchpad competitions have helped 254 writers get signed, 81 projects get set up, 48 writers get staffed, and led to four bidding wars. When you enter your pilot this year, you'll save $15 off your entry just by using the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout, as a special thank you to our listeners. For more information on the tracking board's current competitions and exclusive partners, visit tblaunchpad.com. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we are going to talk about macro storytelling in television. Why is it important to have long-standing character and story arcs across entire seasons? And what are some useful TV examples on the subject? Let's find out. Welcome to our Paper Scraps segment, and this week we're going to first off read a couple more reviews out on the podcast. The first one is entitled, They Are Great, by Jason G. Sweden. And he says, there's not enough good podcasts about TV writing, and this is one of them. A+. Plus. I think that's the best grade I've ever gotten, uh, <laughs> even outside of school. So, is the, Do they call them A+, in French? No, it's <laughs> the grading system in France is actually a number-based, not letter-based. I'll mm-hmm. have you know. And the other review we wanted to read is from Melibs5 or Melibs5, and he or she writes, Nicely done podcast. I've been listening to the Paper Team podcast for a while now, and it is great. I really appreciate the prep that goes into each episode. I don't always agree with everything, but it is fantastic to get a different perspective on the industry from a newbie POV, and the resources shared are always helpful. It reminds me of grad school, just talking shop with friends who understand the nuances of writing and enjoy things like debating the merits of a cold open or genre tropes. Well, thank you so much for those reviews. If anyone else would like to leave us a review, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. Now, moving on to our little paper scrap for the week, I wanted to briefly touch on the notion of signing with a rep, whether that's a manager or an agent. Now, in the talent world, sometimes there is an actual contract that you have to sign when you sign up with like a talent manager or an agent or whatever. But in the literary world, I don't think I've ever seen someone physically sign their name on a dotted line when they agree to work with a manager or an agent. It's more a figure of speech. It's a lot like the concept of hip-pocketing. Essentially, it's a verbal agreement between people. And it's kind of a, if it works for you, it works for me, dynamic, at least from my own experience. Absolutely. And this can lead to some situations where it is unclear if this manager or agent is representing you or if they're doing that weird thing where it's like a hip pocket, we'll try it out and see what happens. Or I'll give you some notes on your script and we'll see how that goes. There, There isn't ever usually like a clear line sometimes. Sometimes they're going to say, yes, I would like to represent you, and it's going to be very obvious. Other times it's not. And this can lead to situations where I've heard of through friends, they're being courted by multiple managers, and they're saying, hey, we're interested in you. We read your pilot. Hey, we had some thoughts on this. They're like, I'd like to send it to my friend over here. And they're like, okay, cool, let's do that. And then they inadvertently find out that two different managers think that they're representing them or something like that. So just be aware of that. It's like the worst industry version of Three's Company. (laughs) Right. And then it gets awkward because those managers have to call each other and be like, well, I found them first, or I got to do this or that. So if you found yourself in a situation like that, don't be afraid to ask, like, are you representing me? Or, you know, things like that. Like, obviously, when you're in those initial stages, it's fine to just have a little bit of a back and forth and feel each other out and see if you enjoy working with each other. But at some point, you should probably clarify what that relationship is before moving forward. Again, this is kind of like dating. At some point, you're going to have the talk and figure out where you are in the relationship. And you should have the same 
conversation with your rep at some point. Yeah, and the same expectations. Don't think that you're going to scare someone off by being like, hey, so are you repping me or not? If they're actually excited about repping you, they're going to say yes. And another way to sort of go about it is essentially if you do get those meetings with the show owner or maybe you run into this awesome EP writer at an event, the, the writer tells you, oh, send me a script. You know, one of the rule of thumbs is essentially you're going to be asking your agent to send your material to them, assuming obviously they're high enough on the ladder. And that's kind of one way to legitimize that relationship is if essentially the contact that they make with those people who have shows and who do those staffing meetings uh, is through that rep and not you directly through like a Gmail email. And certainly by the time that you are making money off of shows, you're going to want to know for sure whether you're working (laughs) with someone and have to pay them 10%. That That is the one thing that you will be asked to sign as a check authorization for so that your check goes through the agency and then gets paid to oh you. Oh my God, we've been dealing with that this whole week with <laughs> the show I'm on where, wait, is it a direct deposit? How does that work? Uh, should we go through the agency or can we just send a check? Uh-huh. I deal with that on there. the other end for the management of writers, so it's fun. <laughs> and by fun, you mean the, the opposite? Worst. <laughs> the worst. So uh, let's move on to our topic for this week. So first up, we are going to be talking about season arcs. So let's get into this idea of macro storytelling and how we were looking at these arcs and breaking them as writers. Yeah, I mean, we won't just be discussing these mythology elements or things you may put in a series Bible in this episode, but it's kind of more so overarching stories that last a season, if not more. And the first thing we do need to take a look at is what a typical season of a TV show looks like. What happens when writers come into the room and figure out what the next 10 to 20 episodes are going to be? Well, obviously every show is different, but there is a common template of that macro storyline structure, and it is kind of the same as any other story that is this three-act structure. Now, if you take a look at that three-act structure in the season sense, essentially the way it works is the first few episodes are there to set up the new problems of the season, the middle third tackles those issues while revealing the larger, bigger question that will occupy the show for the remainder of the season, and the last few episodes resolve that big problem, with the finale usually being the execution of that solution, including its aftermath and recovery into the next season. Now, 24 was famous for doing just that, with one bad guy being in the first eight episodes, then he or she gets killed and a new puppet master is revealed emerges from the shadows then finally around episode 16 the real twist arrives and it's actually someone we've known all along really pulling the strings and even seasons with your cable 10 to 13 episodes do share that template and in fact a common criticism of the marvel shows on netflix is that they always have a few filler episodes and should just be eight to ten episodes a season and i think One of the reasons why people feel that way, in my mind, is because the shows are trying to tell one continuous narrative in 13 episodes with very few characters and very few locations. If you think about it, it's almost like a bottle episode, except uh, that bottle episode lasts an entire season, and Hell's Kitchen is that one location where everything takes place. And that's why I really enjoyed the second season of Daredevil, and that's because they broke that season out into three distinctive kind of micro arcs of about three to four episodes that served to introduce the new characters of The Punisher and Elektra. And Marco Ramirez, who was the co-showrunner alongside Doc Petrie of that season, said about the format, quote, We talked about when we watch shows in 13 episode stretches. How do we watch them? What is an exciting structure that we would like to think about here? Do we divide it right down the middle? Do we do a three-act structure? But if you were to sit and watch 13 episodes, you would absolutely feel a structure much like the, in the comics. And that is what we did that season. 
It's interesting because the season numbers, episode orders have been shrinking. Like the, there was always 13 or 22 or whatever, but now we're getting 10 episode seasons. We're getting eight episode seasons. The Game of Thrones last one was a seven episode season. It honestly doesn't seem to really matter as much for those streaming services and places where they're just like, we'll tell as many episodes as few or as much as we need. I mean, the the Defenders was eight episodes. And I think in part was obviously probably budget slash scheduling issues. But also on the storytelling level, I do believe that eight episodes, if you're going to tell one continuous narrative, I don't think you can sustain the heightened level of serialization for this one specific arc over over 13, 20 episodes. I mean, that's kind of insane. And that's why, you know, something like The Leftovers works best. I mean, I've said it many times, but I do believe that it does maintain that sense of uh, episodic nature. But we'll talk more about that later. I mean, the British model has always been around about six episodes and Australians have followed that. And now they seem to be doing like four episodes, weird things like that in in Australia (laughs) at home. They're like, we have this much money. (laughs) You can have one and a half episodes. I don't know. But speaking of those shows that play around with their episode numbers, Game of Thrones is another great example of what I would call a pretty typical season structure as to how things tend to flow. Now, (laughs) Alex may want to block his ears. There aren't any real spoilers here, but he is not caught up. So one of the things I've always noticed is that about maybe two episodes out from the season finale, you always get this really big set piece battle type situation. So in episode five out of seven in the most recent season, there was Eastwatch. In episode nine out of 10 in season six, there was the Battle of the Bastards. In episode eight out of 10 in season five, there was Hard Home. So these huge action-packed episodes always tend to resolve some kind of big conflict that's been building up throughout the season. And then they give way to quieter, more character-based finales that allow us to see the consequences of these actions reflected in the world and in the characters. Like a lot of the big will-they-won't-they questions are solved in those confrontations. And now we're just seeing the just desserts and the comeuppance, the denouement. Also somewhere in the middle of a season is typically going to be some kind of other huge game changer that upends the direction we thought the story was going in and sets these events on a collision course to those big penultimate conflicts. And another thing I've noticed is that there's usually one episode per season where we focus the action entirely away from the main plot, kind of like a bottle episode, focusing on some minor character who hasn't really been a big part of the story. Think of the Hounds episode where he's off trying to be a farmer. So not every episode has to constantly push that main plot arc forward when you are mapping out your season arcs, even in a heavily serialized show. Sometimes they do this you know, departure for a relatively standalone episode. And maybe it has some minor outcome by the end of it that influences the main plot. Sometimes it doesn't. The, you know, These episodes can really sometimes help to build the tension and suspense from the main plot because the whole time we're wondering, wait, what does this have to do with it? What, what's going on with John and Danny or in King's Landing? And it helps contribute to the sense of pacing and time passing that is so important and has been continually compressed in this series. Yeah, I mean, I, I do believe a lot of people are almost disappointed by some elements of Mindhunters. I haven't seen the show, but I hear that there's a recurring segment, I think at the beginning of each episode, where they show this random character uh, for some reason. And apparently, from what I understand, it's not even resolved within the season. It's kind of a setup for another season. Uh, and so that is kind of just distracting. Uh, if you're going to be inserting those elements that tease a mystery that you're not even going to resolve or address in that one season. That's really weird, um, yeah. yeah. But I will say that some shows kind of shift that structure depending on what they want that season to be about. One of my favorite shows, The Good Wife on CBS, uh, usually was split into two halves where the first half had this climax around the November sweeps, which pushed the second half of the season into a completely different direction. And all that action culminated in the May sweeps episode. And I'll talk more about the fifth season later in this episode, which actually 
actually shifted that structure into the classic three-act structure. But I did want to bring up The Good Wife, which has instead of that three-act model, more of a two-act thing. Yeah, it's definitely not always three-act. Sometimes it could be five-acts or whatever it happens to be. But it's interesting you mentioned the sweeps because I hear that there's usually a lot of pressure from the network and from producers to do something really big and game-changing around that time to get people to tune in. And so they will kill off characters. They'll have people get married. They'll do whatever, you know? Totally. And uh, I've mentioned that episode before, but the alias episode that aired after the Super Bowl was a huge game changer because the it was originally not intended as the Super Bowl episode. I think it was later in the in the season, probably around sweeps time. And they they pulled that forward and it completely upended the dynamic. And so the second half of the season is very different from the first season and a half of the show. But we've been talking about dramas this whole time, but what about comedy snake? That's your specialty, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, the interesting thing is not all comedies have serialization episode to episode across the season. A lot of multicam comedies, animated comedies, and even many single cams simply just reset each week and they tell self-contained stories episode by episode. Now, the original reason for that was syndication, networks being able to play these episodes out of order without needing context or throwing out some story arc out of order. But certainly the trend these days seems to be more and more towards serialized comedy. You've got Master of None, The Love, You're the Worst, The Last Man on Earth. You know, anywhere on the spectrum from entirely serialized stories to relatively episodic ones with ongoing arcs that are revisited every couple of episodes. Even, you know, interesting new formats like American Vandal. And this seems to be due to the rise of the streaming services and premium cable that will allow this kind of storytelling to prosper and specifically encourage the binging of these storylines. I remember watching all of season one and two of You're the Worst in like a week, just wanting to know what happens with Jimmy and Gretchen's relationship. I binged the entire last season of BoJack in a couple of days, whereas I'm less likely to want to watch 10 episodes of Family Guy in a row, even if I enjoy it. Totally. And I think on top of that, those new venues to binge those shows, I think another part of it is that a lot of those comedies end up taking cues from drama series or other successful formats in different genres. I mean, you brought up American Vandal. Obviously, that was inspired by the popular true crime documentary series that are happening in sort of the ether right now. Master of Nantics after many classic dramatic movies and most serialized comedies airing today are taking their cues from serialized dramas. I mean, Mike Schur specifically seeked out Bad Robot slash Lost producers to be involved in The Good Place originally. I mean, Damon Lindelof recommended Drew Goddard to him and obviously the rest is history. Uh, now, Arrested Development is probably the first modern TV comedy series I can think of that used serialization outside of any pre-existing construct. Kind of used non-linear storytelling in a way that very few comedies, if not shows at all, were doing at the time. And in fact, once Lost started and became popular, you did have How I Met Your Mother come into existence. So I find it interesting that there's almost kind of this symbiotic relationship between popular narrative formats used in drama series and then how they evolved into comedy versions later on. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They're looking at what's been successful on the drama side and like what tools and what hints can we take from these as to how to write a successful comedy series. But that said, serialization doesn't suit all shows. Now, Liz Merriweather is the showrunner for New Girl on Fox. At one point in her season, tried to create more involved narrative arcs for the show, but she realized that simpler stories just worked better for them. And she said, this is a quote, we stopped thinking what was the funniest thing and instead started worrying more about how to get one character from one point to another. She also said there's often a tension between having a complex plot and a quantity of jokes. And it's interesting if you look that most of the network comedies and the highest rated comedies do tend to stick to an episodic format like The Big Bang Theory, Modern Family, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Simpsons, The Goldbergs. That does go back to the whole idea of repeatable viewership and syndication. 
Absolutely. Now, just going back to those serialized comedies, there's kind of this merging on the writer's room front where a lot of drama people are going to go on to comedy shows and vice versa. The Good Place is one example where you do have that very heavy drama genre influenced on the comedy front. And on the comedy end, Lethal Weapon is a one hour, and yet you do have or did have a lot of comedy writers come into that room. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that those walls are breaking down now, whereas before you were either very strictly, I'm a comedy writer, I punch up jokes for multi-cam sitcoms, mm-hmm. or you're like, oh, I'm a very serious drama writer. We are getting people crossing over more and more and bringing those sensibilities into each, and they seem to be blending more and more into each other, which I think is ultimately a good thing. So now that we've looked at what a general season of a TV show can look like, let's talk about putting that knowledge into use. And first, do you really need to know everything in advance of writing a pilot, especially a spec pilot? Yeah, when you're talking about writing a pilot, it's important to understand that unless you are working in a writer's room or pitching to a development exec or perhaps writing and shooting your own digital web series, you'll typically not have to plot out an entire season arc in full for a show. You only need to write a pilot with the potential for these ongoing threads to unravel themselves in a season or multiple seasons. And if someone loves your pilot so much they want to make the show, well, then you're going to have an entire writer's room to help you break the season, as well as a lot of input from producers and studio network execs and probably a showrunner you're going to be paired up with. So it might almost be wasted effort to go that far. Although I will say that if you are intending to write a mystery, be it on a spec pilot or any kind of story that has this mysterious element or ongoing narrative, I do really believe that you should know more or less what that truth is from the beginning. You can always change it later, especially based on factors outside of your control, be it you know budget, production, etc. But you do need to write to a specific thing from the get-go, otherwise you'll kind of quickly get overrun with how convoluted everything becomes once you do get to write those elements. I sometimes hear newer writers say that they just open up Final Draft and start writing and see where it takes them. And I would advise pretty strongly against doing this. And I think it's why a lot of pilots that I read, you know, spec pilots from from new writers, are four acts of setup. And then they're establishing the characters in the world. And the inciting incident happens in Act 5. And they end the pilot going, oh, what will happen next? (laughs) And that's exactly what you should have put in the pilot is what would happen next. I I think that it's an easy way out because you don't really need to do any thinking about how your story threads play out in a typical episode and how those dynamics work because you've only just introduced them by the time the episode ends. And if you ask one of these writers, well, what happens over the first season, they'll often have very little idea. Yeah, a pilot isn't a prequel. It's the first episode of that story. And another common mistake on that level is that you can't just save the drama for later episodes that could or should happen in your first episode in the first place, especially if you're writing something on spec. This awesome twist halfway through the season doesn't matter if your season doesn't exist in the first place. Exactly. Whatever ideas you have for later in the season need to be set up in the pilot anyway. You're building your toolbox of characters and conflicts, etc., that you can use throughout the season. Even if they're merely hinted at, they need to be there in that first episode. You don't want to be introducing major characters or concepts to the show in episode two or three. It all needs to be set up in some way in your pilot. And in terms of knowing things in advance, even if all you're writing is this spec pilot that you are only using to take meetings, having a broad idea of where you want to take the show is always good. 
Every meeting I've had with someone who's read one of my pilots had at some point a discussion about ideas I had of where the show and the characters would go from there, especially sort of direction of the first season and overall series arc. That doesn't mean this pilot will ever get made or even that I have to stick by any of this if it does actually get made. It just means that it is still important when you're going out with a spec pilot to have some baseline for what you want to happen next. Obviously, once you're developing or pitching a show for a production company or a network, there are entirely more advanced questions that come into play. But even if you're just writing the spec script, you should have some sense and some idea of where you want to go. Yeah, they just want to know that you have thought about it and you have smart, good ideas as a writer as to how you would play that out. Now, in comedy, I would say, honestly, all you need for the pilot is a really strong engine, like a core conflict and a dynamic between the characters and the situation that they're in that you can see what they call having legs. That is being able to generate new stories from this crucible week in, week out. Now, Brooklyn 99, it's a procedural engine of a weekly police case within the context of this dynamic of the team and this screwball Jake and his stern captain. In Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, it's Kimmy who's being exposed constantly to this unfamiliar world and learning new things each week from her point of view as someone who's still mentally a teenager from the year 2000, and she's surrounded by people like Titus and Jacqueline. Now, those don't necessarily have ongoing plot threads that are tracking beat by beat to some sort of huge resolution. It's just a really strong core conflict and comedy. Now, you may want to leave a few little threads unspooled, like some romantic tension or an antagonistic relationship or someone having a secret that could be discovered so that there is this promise of potential future plot and character developments. But you certainly don't need to plan out a whole season arc for a comedy unless you are telling a super serialized comedy like you know Love on Netflix. And I'm assuming at that point that you already sold the show and you're making it for money and not spec. Exactly. And that's why you'll often see that when people are pitching comedy series to networks, they don't have like a story Bible or, you know, even a pitch deck or anything that's going to be like, here's our series and here's how it all plays out. A lot of the time, these comedies will just stand alone on the strength of the pilot. They will live or die on that. They, you might be asked questions as a creator in the pitch of where do you see it going? What are some other episodes that might happen? But in the same way that a drama definitely usually needs some sort of tracking of the the plot lines, uh, a comedy won't. And that's why you don't find Bibles for Brooklyn Nine-Nine around on the internet as to, (laughs) in episode 12, (laughs) the captain's going to do this and it'll lead to that. Yeah, these end up being more recurring jokes or elements from the show itself once it it's kind of this living, breathing creature, not really before it's even pitched out. Yeah, ideally, everything you need to know should be contained within that pilot, and people can see the series just from that. There's this whole debate about how far in advance you should plot things out. And obviously, Lost launched this trend of hyper-serialized television series, and yet, ironically, it didn't really have all the macro pieces planned out from the get-go. However, they still knew the season arcs they wanted to tell, and that's kind of the big debate that people have had about Lost. But if you look at what is actually happening every season on the show, you do have these clear, distinctive kind of feelings to each year. I mean, season one is obviously getting to know our original survivors, but then you have season two about the tail section and season three about the others. Season four is about the freighter people and season five is the Dharma Initiative. Now, whether or not they knew what the smoke monster was when they wrote episode two doesn't matter as much as whether or not they knew where they were headed on a narrative and character level. 
But I will say that when it comes to macro storytelling, I think the biggest risk you can run into when not knowing some of the pieces is essentially writing yourself into a corner and having to walk back everything you've built up to that point. Battlestar Galactica famously wrote itself into a corner at the end of its second season. I mean, the season two finale, which is actually one of my favorite episodes of TV specifically because of the many risks it took, already had insane plot investments with one of character being elected president, another sending off this nuke that blew half the fleet off, and then the entire colonial population settles down on a new planet. And all of that would have been enough turns for half a season, but the finale, on top of all those events, also jumped one year later and ends with another turn with the Cylons landing on the planet. I'm already overwhelmed by everything going on within the last 30 minutes of TV, but the reason why I'm bringing up this episode in our podcast episode about micro storytelling is that this was the end of the first true long-standing arc of PhD. I mean, for two years, the show had set up all these rules about who could and could not be a humanoid Cylon. Then, with the Cylons showing up where the colonials live, that created a new set of unanswerable questions regarding those mythology questions, like who is a Cylon in the fleet? Obviously, if the Cylons are on the planet with every colonial person, then people are quickly going to realize, oh wait, these five random people all look identical, and these last Cylons are instantly revealed. So the writers had to kind of retcon all of that mythology to write themselves out of that game-changing cliffhanger, which led to the creation of the final five Cylons, meaning that they had to essentially create this new rules of who could and could not be a Cylon. And negating what you've been building towards is a very tricky thing to do in TV, especially genre TV, where people are picking apart every single story and character element. Now, if you binge watch BSG, you may not notice these discrepancies, but as someone who's lived and breathed BSG while it was airing, I can tell you that they stick out like a sore thumb during the airing. And when reveals are too unrealistic and cancel out years of character development, then you're not just damaging what you're writing next, but also what you wrote before. So we've taken a look at plot arcs. What about character arcs? We said it time and time again on this podcast and forever. TV is a character's medium. So having character arcs, something that will move the character into new and interesting direction is crucial to great TV writing. And knowing what direction you want a character to take, either emotionally or thematically, can be a kind of a useful litmus test to what story you want to pursue in your next episode. And you need to start paving that road that the character is going to take later on. I mean, Breaking Bad works so well in part because Walter White slowly transformed into Heisenberg. You could actually see that slippery slope Walter was going down. Yeah, I mean, as Britta said last episode, every time they sit down to break an episode, they're looking at each of the characters and where they left them off last episode and where they need to end up by the end of that one. But one of the best things I found to do when you're thinking about and creating these characters is to kind of take one end of that journey or the other. You know, where is my character now or where do I want them to end up as a character, not their physical location? <laughs> if your character is a timid, shy, insecure person, figure out what's the absolute worst situation for that person to be in and then put them through that and figure out how that changes them. Or if you know what you want your character to be like by the end of the story, find whatever the opposite or diagonal or something completely different to that is and then make them like that at the beginning. Then have fun figuring out how they get that way. But ultimately, 
all of this, their journey, is going to make some sort of statement and speak to a theme. It's not just about the how, but the why. Walt's character journey in Breaking Bad kind of speaks to a man going from trying to act in the best interests of others to the detriment of himself to someone who is then acting selfishly to the detriment of others. Only when he finds out he's dying does he allow himself to live and do things for him that make him happy. So... If you started on either end of that, you could say, who would be the most interesting person for Mr. Chips to become? Or who would be the most interesting person to become Scarface? And you get Walter White. And, you know, that inherently says something meaningful and thematic in that journey. Totally. And and part of that character development is because you don't reset or forget what you've set up. I mean, Walter White works at the end of the fifth season because of everything he's gone through in the prior four seasons. And one of my favorite examples of a show that never forgot what it was was Farscape. And during the first season in the episode Nerve, John Crichton, the main character, gets tortured by Scorpius, the main villain. And it's shocking, it's disturbing, but more importantly, it's impactful. The show did not do that story for cheap thrills or just to raise stakes. It was to launch the next piece into John Crichton's journey. And long after the episode is over, that psychological toll of the torture is still present. It's kind of forever embedded into John's psyche. And so instead of forgetting about what happened, in the following episode, the show used that pivotal moment as a fundamental shift in John Crichton's personality. From that point on, he becomes more and more unhinged, borderline crazy. Our perception is completely changed, and so has his own perception. And that's kind of a very different approach from all other sci-fi shows that came before Farscape. I mean, just take a look at Star Trek TNG. You got that episode Chain of Command, where Picard is physically and psychologically tortured by the Cardassians. Not the Cardassians. <laughs> the Cardassians. It's <laughs> not the Kardashians, Kardashians. And the next episode, it's a whole tabula rasa. It's a reset of everything that happened in that episode. So the fact that he was tortured for 40 minutes doesn't matter. And so as you create those character arcs, keep in mind that psychological scars last just as much as physical ones, if not longer. And a lot of TV shows, I feel, forget that, but you should not. Moving on to comedy, as we've said a lot of the time characters don't change in sitcoms and that can be an issue or maybe just a non-issue if it's not something that you need to, to worry about. But for those that do, there are some really interesting journeys. So taking a look at Bojack in Bojack Horseman, he goes in the first season from being this willfully insensitive, ignorant, unempathetic jerk to someone who slowly comes to realize the impact of his actions and his choices on both the people around him and himself. Bojack becomes very self-reflective and self-flagellating. But the great irony and tragedy is that all of this awareness doesn't really help him get better. He keeps repeating the same mistakes and hurting the same people no matter how much he doesn't want to. And he's driving himself into this deeper spiral of shame and despair. He thinks he's figured it out and then he screws it up all over again. So he comes to understand through his past maybe how and why he is this way, like his parents and his career. Not ever really how to be better or even if it's truly possible to change. It's such a fascinating exploration of that notion of character change in a sitcom. It's someone who's trying but failing in a really tragic way rather than just a funny way. And also that notion of even if you're aware of what's bad and what needs to change, can you do it? He hits this rock bottom at the end of season three going on a bender with Sarah Lynn, who was his daughter in his old TV show, and she ends up dying of an overdose of heroin ironically a strain called Bojack, which is a not-so-subtle metaphor for what you know he's doing to the people around him. And then in season four, after he flees town again and tries to find himself, he comes back a little more stabilized, and he's making productive steps in his relationships with his mother and with Hollyhock, being less self-destructive. 
which is an interesting contrast now with Diane in season four, who was one of the characters who more or less grew positively in the first few seasons, mainly due to being pushed away from Bojack. But now in season four, she's starting to end up on the same self-destructive bent that Bojack had previously epitomized. A lot of those shows, in fact, not just comedy, but drama as well, have this opposite arc going on with two characters, where one character becomes that other character. I think Game of Thrones is very similar. A lot of the characters' arcs, at least in the book and in the show, also transform into the opposite of who they were at the beginning. I mean, at least in the book, Tyrion starts off as this like very jolly, positive character and ends up being this like very dark uh, figure. And I know it's kind of the opposite with some of the villains. Obviously, Jamie Lannister also uh, was kind of a villain at the beginning. and then uh, He becomes a much more heroic character with a conscience, exactly. for sure. Yeah, storytelling deals a lot in those opposites and those shadows shadows and those things that kind of match with each other as they change. Looking at another sitcom example, Rick and Morty, you have this character, Rick, who almost seems to undergo a journey from being an uncaring, aggressive, contemptful man who couldn't care less about Morty or the family and just kind of using him for his own ends to starting to see that facade crack and us seeing that he genuinely does care about Morty and Summer and Beth. But the interesting thing is it's usually in moments where none of them see it. It's only the audience. And every time it does come out to the other characters, he instantly flips it back around and covers it up with jokes or aggression or reveals some other true selfish motive, like when he turns himself into the Galactic Federation it's actually so he could destroy them from the inside out, not to save his family from his influence. So it's actually impossible to know whether he's actually undergoing growth or change. It's more of a constant flip-flop back and forth. Now, is it that he cares and pretends not to, or is it that he doesn't care and pretends to sometimes to manipulate or trick people? It really toys with their expectations about what character change looks like in a season or multiple season arc, and if a character is undergoing it or not. Yeah, and on that subject, I actually wrote a while ago this uh, post about lessons I took from the TV running of Parks and Rec. One of those was kind of knowing when to move on from specific character-based storylines. Now, Nick, let me ask you, do you remember the character of Mark Brandonowitz in Parks and Rec? Very vaguely. I skipped season one. So. Exactly. Most people actually did skip season one. That was probably what they were told to do because mm-hmm. it's irrelevant to the rest of it. And in fact, if you'll recall, and probably you don't, but Leslie's longstanding crush, Mark, was promptly swept under the rug right after the first season because it didn't quite seem to work for the writers. And the character himself made his official departure in the second season. He actually was supposed to come back because he was based on a real-life city planner who also came back in that small town, but I mean, I guess that didn't quite work out as planned. But either way, the voluntary decision to exile the character shows that Parks and Rec was always willing to kind of stay fresh and avoid some perpetual status quo with all its characters and those dynamics therein. And Mike Schur talked about that very idea in an interview. And he said, quote, all of these decisions fall under the general heading of character development. My own preference is that everyone on the show should be in a different place at the end of a season from where they were at the beginning of a season. I don't like shows where you catch an episode and repeats, and it could literally be from season two or season eight. People change in real life, and I think they should on TV as well. And the same can be said, end quote, by the way, this is just me uh, going, <laughs> uh, the same can be said with the many relationships on the show. When April and Andy got married out of the blue in a random season three episode, it caught everyone off guard, including viewers. And this wasn't just because it was a joke. The shock came from the fact that the wedding actually happened. And even better, it completely fit the relationship in question and the character's impulsive nature. And so let me quote again Mike Chu's own comments on the subject. And he said, all we knew was that we wanted to avoid the standard issue TV romance plots, fights, 
other men, women driving them apart, and so on. We just thought about who they were, two impulsive goofballs who don't approach their lives in a responsible adult manner, and decided, what the hell? What if they just make a rash decision and get hitched? And as soon as the idea came up, we felt it made sense, and as a bonus, the stakes would subsequently be higher for every story we told about their relationships. End quote. And therein lies one of the great things behind the writing of Parks and Rec, realistic character development. The idea is to always organically push the characters in their logical direction instead of having them run circles. Ben's understated and perfect marriage proposal to Leslie is another great way to show a leap with two central characters. And so when it comes to your own series relationships, commit forward instead of taking a step back. I mean, I feel like there's rarely, if ever, a need to stagnate in those areas. One thing to be really careful of in comedy as well, and I'm sure this happens in drama, is this notion of flanderization, which we've talked about before on the podcast, named after Ned Flanders, because his character over the seasons of The Simpsons has been pushed further and further to the extreme. He used to be just a fairly regular guy who happened to be religious and go to church and sit down and pray with his family into this like religious zealot who is just (laughs) the most neat and pristine and polite dude in the world. And this happens with other characters too, like maybe Stan Marsh in South Park. He was once a pretty tame father geologist guy and now he's an incredibly extreme character phoebe and joey on friends just got pushed further and further to that end as well so i guess what you want to be careful of there is like alex was talking about following characters through their logical thing but not doing that to the point where you are merely making them a parody of themselves it's not character growth it's someone oversimplifying what these characters are and losing a lot of the nuance by just trying to make them bigger and flashier and hey this character is an idiot so they're only ever going to say dumb things and you're not evolving that character you're just doing the same thing over and over again to a point where it's a parody of itself yeah it's like people writing a bad spec episode of the show <laughs> <You know? laughs> But doing it themselves. Is that what you're calling later Simpsons episode? Bad spec version of the show? No comment. One thing we wanted to talk about also is this idea that you can kind of lose track of what matters most if you kind of get distracted by planning out yours of storylines. And Britta, we brought Britta in this very episode, but Britta last week also shared that idea that you don't want to lose the main characters and main players in the grand scheme or whatever grand mystery you're building towards. I like how our podcast has become serialized by referring to our previous <laughs> episodes now. <laughs> Going back to Daredevil, the second season, uh, Doc Petrie, the other shorter, uh, talked about that idea that the writers would come up with these amazing stuff for the season, but then they would realize they had forgotten about Matt Murdock and had to completely turn it over and look at how this affects Matt and filter it through that prism. In other words, they had these cool ideas for Electra and the Punisher, and then they realized, oh wait, this isn't the Punisher, the TV show, it's Daredevil. And so you got to pull back to that prime character. And 24 became very repetitive after a point because every villain had to be connected somehow to the main characters. And it kind of worked in the first couple of seasons, but after a while, that concept becomes tired. And the same thing happened with Heroes. I mean, the first season successfully bridged all these characters from all around the world into one cohesive macro storyline while still setting up each piece of the puzzle within the episodes. But then you continue doing that over and over again, and it becomes very repetitive and very tiring. And the reason people tune to TV isn't just to solve some equation. It is to follow characters on a journey to solve that equation. And whatever arc you're trying to figure out, remember that at the end of the day, those arcs need to be relevant to your leads. Any iconic 
groundbreaking TV show about some overarching mystery was first and foremost about characters. Think about Lost, The X-Files, Deep Space Nine, Buffy, Babylon 5, Twin Peaks, whatever you want to name, every one of those shows is based on character first and then the mystery is second. Absolutely. I think craft-wise, there is a risk associated with too much character change and situation change that comes from following the plot or the character arc, especially in comedy. You know, your show is crafted with certain dynamics between characters and situations that ensure conflict in comedy. If Homer Simpson suddenly goes on a season-long journey to educate himself and understand the world better, that might be interesting and new, but you're also losing one of the key tools in your arsenal to have him misunderstand the world and clash with other characters over his idiocy. So I think in a way you have to ask yourself, what is your objective as a storyteller? If you're exploring deep human themes, then maybe the tool of a character undergoing protracted change is useful. If you're trying to comment on the typical American family and their place in today's society, maybe it's better to throw changing situations at a state unit of characters rather than, say, explore in depth what it's like for one of those characters to permanently adapt to those different situations. Now, episodically, you can have a character try to bend who they are to fit these situations, but ultimately, they're probably going to spring right back into shape. And in its own way, that says something by their lack of change, just as much as having a character successfully change says something. That ironic failure to learn or change episodically is a key tool of comedy, and it speaks to themes in its own way, just like a fully resolved season arc does. Absolutely agree, but all those decisions have to be made on purpose. They can't just be this basic reset. And I think what you brought up, Nick, is this idea of essentially fitting the format to the characters in the story you want to tell. And I think that's the best way to go about it is... If you want to tell an episodic story, then tell an episodic story because you want to tell an episodic story. And if you won't really want to tell the serialized story, then have a serialized story to tell. Don't just do it because it's the cool new format to do it in. So when you're plotting out these season arcs and things are going across multiple seasons, how do shows stay fresh and sometimes change what they are fundamentally? Yeah, especially if you have that repeatable formula, a show can get stale real fast. And as I brought up earlier in this episode, one of my favorite show is The Good Wife. And one of my favorite seasons in that show is the fifth season, which was praised for many things, including kind of transforming what a broadcast legal show could do on a serialized level. And in any legal slash procedural show, you essentially know that whatever happens within that season, the concept basically remains the same. You do have this set group of characters who go to work together. They work on a case. They go through the procedural motions of solving the case. Some reveal happens, and then we start all over again the next episode. And The Good Wife was already kind of breaking new grounds on CBS with a pretty heavily serialized plotline in the back of uh, a show. But then the fifth season kind of broke the mold even further with the very concept of the show being reinvented almost on a weekly basis. And pieces were being moved every week with that formula of the show changing at key parts. I mean, that season was divided into three acts, unlike the other seasons, which were, as I brought up earlier, two acts. And the first few episodes of season five completely reinvented the paradigm of the series itself. You had kind of this civil war happening within the main firm of the show. And in the fifth episode of this season called Hitting the Fan, you can fill in the blank, characters, including the lead, left the law firm to open up a competing law firm. It was kind of a Captain America Civil War, but on a CBS procedural. And so the next series of episodes continue with the brand new status quo that was established in that fifth episode. But that status quo was once again changed very dramatically with this is a big spoiler, one of the lead characters from the show being killed 
pretty much out of the blue around the end of the second act of season five. So once again, that season narrative had completely shifted going into the last batch of the fifth season episodes. And I gotta point out that all these crazy changes were not just done for crazy sweep stunts. I mean, it was actually to keep the show fresh and avoid settling into this repeatable formula. That's actually one of the reasons why I love the show and that season in particular, and is considered by myself one of the best seasons of TV ever. And that is because it changed completely what the show itself was about and made its narrative structure completely unpredictable while staying true to the characters. And that is what great TV is about. It's about having characters evolve and introducing new nuances to the storytelling. Just binge watch the first five seasons of The Good Wife and you can thank me later. It's interesting. I think some shows just reach a point where they've kind of exhausted their premise and they've run out of stories to tell in that context. And when that happens, they often try changing it up and it's risky. A lot of the times it doesn't work for them and people respond with a huge backlash. But they kind of have to, creators have to weigh up what would people hate more, staleness and watching a show they love kind of crumble away into a husk of itself or a really big fundamental change to a familiar show that they've grown to love. Yeah, and I think ironically, that's exactly why why people were not such big fans of the sixth and seventh season was essentially because they went back to that old status quo instead of sticking with the massive changes they had done in the fifth season. I mean, the fifth season was praised and loved by pretty much everyone, but I, I think the the Kings didn't realize how much uh, until they tugged the rug back <laughs> under uh, people's feet. And I think that's another thing to watch out for when you ride those kind of long arcs is if you're going to be changing the game and pulling the rug out of the characters and the audience, then you've got to stand by your decision and move forward because i mean if you double back and pretend nothing happened i really feel you're going to run into big trouble from the fandom at least well, in my funnily case. enough it's just what rick and morty are trying to do right now really at the, the, the end of the last season they literally point out in very meta commentary that like all right everything's back to normal like rick says it's going to be just like season one but you know a little better you know <laughs> wow <laughs> like they basically said they wanted to put an end to the serialization element of it and just do fun adventures each week because it was too much for them how did the fan base react well, no one's seen, I guess, what they're going to do with that yet. Wow. So no one, yeah, it's interesting. But another show that I know we both love that we can talk about in terms of serialization is The Good Place. And now, spoiler alert, I'm going to give some context for people who haven't seen it. Season one takes place entirely under the assumption that all of these characters are in The Good Place, which is like heaven. But there's one character, Eleanor, who isn't meant to be there. And she realizes she's been pulled in as the wrong person. So this place starts falling apart because she's the one wrong piece in it. And so now she's desperately trying to learn how to be a good person and unlearn all these bad behaviors and change so that she can actually stay here and, and stop this from happening. Then the finale flips everything on its head and reveals that actually none of those human characters are meant to be there. They're all actually in the bad place, which is like hell, and they're being tortured by this exact situation of finding themselves the only person who's not meant to be in heaven. And the, this friendly Ted Danson character who's been helping them all along is actually a demon who's orchestrating their torture. And then season two kind of becomes its whole another thing. Like, I didn't feel that the good place had reached the point of staleness yet after only one season where they needed to to invert things. So that was a very conscious decision, I think, on their part to flip the script on what was happening as a storytelling perspective. Hell is other people. And then season two has almost kind of like gone... 
in a number of directions of, of where it could go. In episode two of it, they burned through what seemed like almost an entire season worth of storylines where Michael is resetting the good place constantly, trying to get it to work again, wiping their memories and being like, actually, this time your soulmate is Tahani or Jason or a golden retriever. And they just threw that all away and said that this isn't what we're doing with this season. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting because I feel many people, at least for me, that's kind of what I expected the entire season to be was just essentially a repeat of the first season, except with Eleanor trying to figure out week after week, wait, is this uh, is this the bad place week after week? And the, and the writers were like, no, we're just going to do that in one episode and then move on from there. Yeah, they opted to push forward into this new story where after Michael realizes that isn't going to work, they all actually now have to work together to fool the other demons to make them think that this is working so that they don't all actually get sent to be tortured and killed. So I'm really curious to see where this goes from here and maybe how many seasons they can last. Are they going to fundamentally change it up every single time or how is it going to work? Well, my thinking is NBC is going to cancel it. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a sad reality, but maybe, you know, these days with storytelling we have that luxury to tell shorter stories and it doesn't have to last for 10 seasons you know? yeah i mean we'll see i'm in the same boat as you nick i really really love the show and hope uh, it continues on for as many seasons as the creators want it to last yeah. and i think it's one of the few entirely serialized network comedies if, if any like it's totally. the only one i can really think of so i think it's it's very brave and pushing that direction and it's doing some really cool things you talked about Parks and Rec before, and that was interesting because they did a similar thing and changed it up again in season four when Leslie runs for city council. This isn't as sudden of a change to what the show is as, say, Baywatch Nights. <laughs> uh, and that's because it feels very in character for Leslie, like you were saying. It, it changes how the show operates, but it is a natural conclusion of where we see that character heading. And so we're, the audience is more understanding and appreciative of that. And it was actually fairly successful. People seem to enjoy this more serialized edition because Leslie was such a beloved character and they, they get to see her get married and have babies and maybe become president. And I think that part of that is because they still found a way to keep the familiar in that situation and pull her back into the office. The later season, she comes back as the national parks person. Well, I know that the, the last season, I mean, they essentially, I think Mike sure has been on the record saying that they wanted to imitate that BSG season two finale I alluded to earlier in this episode with a time shift where they jumped whatever it was one two years I don't even know it was to reinvigorate the series and the formula of the show so that's one of the main reasons why I love Parks and Rec it's because they took those chances at uh, reinventing itself another show I really loved in its first season was Prison Break I thought it was a very cleverly planned plotted thing it was very new and fresh and interesting and it kind of delved in that question of, well, how does this show have legs? How does it repeat itself? They're going to break him out of a prison. Where does the show go? Is it only one season? And what it ended up doing was the entire second season was them on the run. They weren't escaping a prison. They were just on the run from the law. And then I think in season three, they end up back in prison again, yeah. which kind of to the untrained eye seems like, oh, they're just making it up as they go along. I mean, Paul Schering, the, the creator of the show, actually had initially pitched that show as three seasons, not four or five or however many we have now, with the first one being that prison break and the second one being them on the run and the third one being a flick version of the first season with Lincoln having to help Michael break out of prison. So even if it does seem all made up, it actually wasn't, at least initially. So they, they kind of changed that formula year after year. But I will say this, that format change was very polarizing with fans. I don't know if you reacted positively to the second season of Prison Break. Certainly but, not um, as positively as the first season. <laughs> and then now there's obviously the reboot again where they're breaking out of another prison somewhere. And at that point, it just seems like it's a little convoluted and a little kind of contrived. What if the prison was us all along? <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, there is... 
season nine of Scrubs. <laughs> what? Which... This is season nine of Scrubs? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> it's rumored to exist. No one's ever seen it. Uh... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but I, that felt more or less like a last-ditch attempt to save this format with a new cast when the original cast wouldn't recur. It also changed networks, but that was pretty widely held to have not been effective. Yeah, I really what? wonder if they had done essentially a spin-off because it was basically a spin-off with a, a younger crew. Yeah. If it had been called Scrubs Junior, Junior or something, <laughs> Scrubs High or something, Scrubs uh, colon interns or something. <laughs> yeah, it feels weird to like almost spoil the legacy of the show by being like, and here's another season. Let's keep it going, everyone. Like, and it's just no. You know. Don't worry, nobody remembers any of this. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So just briefly looking at the merits of telling your story in a self-contained way versus a serialized way, there was recently an article on io9 with the very clickbaity, provocative title, Serialized TV Has Become a Disease. It's fatal. <laughs> Ironically, we're talking about Star Trek Discovery, which can be uh, shortened to STD. So uh, yeah. maybe... Uh, what were your, basically, the article seemed to say that too many shows these days are trying to be serialized to the detriment of their storytelling and that there were so many classic shows back in the day that would have standalone episodes that were great and that you know they essentially thought that this trend was people trying to keep up with what's hot rather than what's the best interest of the story right yeah i mean i definitely agree with that article in a lot of ways the article specifically talks about structural discovery and sort of compares it to the x-files and the orville and how all those shows kind of fit within the the modern serialized paradigm we've talked about this multiple times i've been on the record saying to me like the real balance lies in uh, having this overarching narrative and and having a payoff on a recurring motif and something that lasts a season versus still having that episodic identity. I mean, I keep getting back to the example of The Leftovers, but I don't believe there's any other show out there currently that really stands the test of, uh, of essentially what The Leftovers is, which is balancing that super complex, long-running mystery and uh, delivering that payoff while maintaining that singular episodic sensibility. Absolutely. And I think even within the franchise of, say, Stargate, you can compare a show like SG-1 to the later show of Universe and see, I guess, where it went wrong commercially, is that SG-1 did such a great job of balancing these week by week, exploring a planet, resolving a storyline, while still having such a great overarching thing with these villains and these you know storylines that come together in people's personal lives, as opposed to Universe being entirely serialized, you could not tune into episode six if you hadn't seen episodes one through five. And that kind of alienates an audience sometimes. Yeah, I agree. Although, I mean, personally, I like the universe. And I do believe that after it got canceled and uh, now that water is under the bridge, I do believe people have liked Stargate Universe and recognized it much more than oh, yeah, at the it's, time. It's not bad. Um, it's just whether it's, it's different. Yeah. It's different. Absolutely. Yeah. And I do believe, I mean, if uh, Stargate were to be made today, I feel like it would resemble Stargate Universe more than Stargate uh, SG-1. And I guess we'll see with Stargate Origins. Yeah, um, the kind of prequel web series thing. Maybe it will. And I know they're rebooting the original movie trilogy yeah, as well. So maybe I mean, there will be another other series in the in the works who knows tbd but yeah i mean i definitely agree that essentially you do have that format but it's up to what storytelling you want to tell right absolutely um, like you said it's what format fits the story best rather than not what you think people 
want to watch. It's it's interesting because I've seen far more people bringing up these episodes of the Orville as so great because there was a standalone takeaway from it rather than it just kind of falling into this mix of serialized stories as well. Yeah, I mean, Star Trek Discovery, like you, I don't hear as many people talk about STD just because I feel like the, the story isn't concluded yet and we don't quite know what the show is. Whereas for the Orville, I mean, we're on what? Episode six, seven, eight of the Orville and you really get a sense of what that show is, at least from episode three and four. Maybe not the first couple episodes because uh, initially it looked like kind of the Family Guy Galaxy Quest version, but it really is essentially a love letter to the next generation and all those shows. And I really like the Orville personally. Whereas Star Trek, I feel like it really is trying to be that dark and gritty version of what BSG was. I mean, BSG, if you remember back in the day, BSG was a response to what Star Trek could not be. And so that's one of the reasons why uh, Ron D. Moore created BSG. We'll see where uh, STD goes. I mean, I'll watch the entire first season and judge at that point. And that's another thing is you can't really judge these serialized shows by a few episodes. You got to wait for the entire package to be released to really understand what they were trying to go for. Yeah, I think there's certainly the temptation there with streaming and Netflix and whatever. Just because things can be binged, maybe it doesn't mean they should. We still have a good balance of both serialized and episodic TV options available to us, regardless of the format we're consuming it through. And all this lies in the conversation where we don't have those venues to talk about those individual episodes if you release everything at once. Where do you go if you want to talk about like episode six of The Defenders and you haven't seen the entire season? Um, nowhere. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> What are our takeaways for this episode? Number one, TV season arcs often emulate classic story structures, namely a three-act formula. Fit the format to the story you want to tell, not the other way around. Number two, you don't need to have everything planned out when writing the pilot on spec, but know enough to hold a conversation about where you want the show to go. Number three, character arcs are crucial to TV. Whether in an episode or across a series, have a direction of where you want to take them. Number four, your episodes themselves still need to be satisfying. Don't get lost in the overarching mysteries and plots. And number five, don't be afraid to change things up if the format is getting stale, but make sure it is believable change that is true to your characters. And how about some resources for our listeners? Well, I will link in the show notes that uh, Mike Shore interview I discussed earlier, which he did back in 2011 with the AV Club. And in it, he goes into a lot of details regarding macro storylines, as well as how they plan things out on both The Office and Parks and Rec. And also, these are not so much resources as much as things you should be watching right now in relation to this episode, and that is the fifth season of The Good Wife, although watch the first four before you do that, and the BHD season two finale, Lay Down Your Burdens. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode, so thanks for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 68. And in a few weeks, you'll be able to get a transcript for this episode at paperteam.co slash 68 transcript. You may have heard that we like reviews. <laughs> so please leave us one at paperteam.co slash iTunes, and we will be your best friend forever. And thanks again to our sponsor, the 2018 Tracking Board Launchpad Pilots Competition. Paper Team listeners can use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout to save $15 off their entry. And you can learn more about all of the Launchpad's current competitions and exclusive partners by visiting tblaunchpad.com. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. 
If you have any thoughts, feedback, Bible ideas, I guess, uh, you can no, send please them. Don't. Please don't. But uh, any opinions, thoughts, questions, you can send them to ask at pbteam.co. And what are we doing next week, Nick? Next week, we're having a special guest, Jorge Gonzalez, who helps run the tracking board competitions. And he's going to talk about what it takes to actually write a competition winning script and get it past those script reader gatekeepers. Very entertaining and interesting information for our listeners. Ooh, I'm going to take notes. Let me tell you. <laughs> All right. We'll see you then. See you then.